Welcome to Sermons from San Diego, a podcast of preaching from Mission Hills United Church of Christ. I'm the Reverend Dr. David Barr, but please just call me David. I invite you to listen and come along as we try to follow the teachings of Jesus and the wisdom of Scripture to build a world that is open, inclusive, just, and compassionate. And now this week's sermon based on Matthew 14, 22 to 33. So last week we began a journey with Peter and his call as one of the first disciples of Jesus. We learned that he was impulsive and impetuous, but even more passionate, committed, and bold, even if his boldness wasn't always well thought out, as today's story proves. But first, so chapter 14 begins with the news that John the Baptist had just been beheaded by Herod because it's what his daughter wanted for her birthday. It was the head of John the Baptist served on a platter, and Jesus was devastated by the news. got into a boat with the intention of going to a deserted place by himself. But before he even got there, the crowds heard that he was coming and were growing larger by the minute, waiting on the shore for him. And by the time he landed, there were thousands of people in search of hope and healing. Even though he really needed a break, he had compassion upon them. In a little while, the disciples arrived and saw all the chaos. After a few hours, they suggested that Jesus dismiss the crowd so they could, the crowd could go get something to eat. Or perhaps so that Jesus could finally get his long delayed break. But instead, Jesus told the disciples, you feed them. It's a story you probably already know. They brought him everything they could find. It was just five loaves of bread and two fish, which Jesus then blessed and broke into pieces and sent around to the crowd. And at the end, 12 basketfuls made their way back to Jesus. About 5,000 men plus women and children had eaten that day. And so that's the point at which Jesus sent the disciples off to the other side of the Sea of Galilee while he finished up. Finally, he could get to the other side of the mountain and go alone and be and pray. Even Jesus needed a break from stress and the heavy heart work of compassion. When evening came, Jesus decided to rejoin the disciples. But first, I was curious, so how big is the Sea of Galilee? You know, it's, it's, the first, it's the largest source of fresh water in Israel. So it's about as wide as the Salton Sea, which is much longer, of course, and definitely not fresh water. Or it's about the distance between here and La Mesa, which doesn't seem that far in a car and a freeway, but think about that distance in a boat fighting against fierce winds and violent waves. Just imagine, it was so difficult sailing into that wind that Jesus caught up with them by walking. The disciples had had a similar experience in a boat in chapter 8. Jesus was in the boat with them as they were crossing when a fierce storm came up, waves so big they were filling the boat. Jesus slept right through it only awakened by terrified disciples begging him him to rescue us. He said, Why are you afraid, faint hearts? 
Why? Because a freaking storm is about to drown us. That's why. But this time, he's not in the boat with them. He's outside of it, walking toward them, which, of course, freaked them out. But when the whole it's a ghost thing was resolved, Peter, true to his impulsive and impetuous personal style, asked to join Jesus on the water. Actually, he said, Lord, if it's you, order me to come to you on the water. With the fierce storm still raging, Peter got out of the boat and began walking to Jesus. As I said, with the fierce, violent storm still raging. But then he notices the fierce, violent storm is still raging and began to sink and called out, Rescue me! And Jesus immediately reached out to grab him. The message translates Jesus' response as a sympathetic, faint heart, what got into you? I much prefer that faint heart over the common English Bible, which translates the words as an accusation that Peter had weak faith. Oh, you man of weak faith, why did you begin to doubt? Or maybe you're more familiar with a slightly more sympathetic, oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? But Peter doesn't suffer from a weak or little faith. I mean, he may be misguided at times and a little overzealous, perhaps. But if we can describe anyone in this way, he is a man of wholehearted faith. He has an all-in, no-holding-back, emotions-on-his-sleeve kind of faith. He can cry hard one minute and then roll on the floor laughing the next Weakness wasn't his problem. And I'm not sure that's some way we would describe our own either. You know, mainline Christians might not have a weak faith as much as perhaps a, a timid faith. Our struggle isn't with doubt. We, we know that doubt isn't the opposite of faith, but well then what is? I suggest doing nothing, trying nothing, standing for nothing is the opposite of faith. So Peter may be impulsive and impetuous. He, he may break promises and act without thinking, kind of like a, a bull in a china shop, but at least he doesn't stand outside that china shop and just peek through the window. His faith was not weak, and I thank God that Peter, full of enthusiasm, rushed right in. But I also thank God there are those who act boldly with great faith in thoughtful and deliberative ways too, who are prepared to do something, try something, and stand for something. Do you know the story of Diane Nash? In the summer of 1961, she was teaching workshops for Freedom Riders with her husband, the Reverend James Bevel. She was 23, and five of her students were under 21 years old. She was arrested and charged with contributing to the delinquency of minors by encouraging them to break the law to desegregate interstate buses. She was found guilty of five counts, each carrying a sentence of six months, a combined total sentence of two and a half years. She appealed, and the NAACP sent a $2,500 bond, the equivalent of almost $26,000 today, but the appeals court deliberately didn't inform her of her court date. 
So because she didn't appear, there was now a warrant out for her arrest. That warrant was quite a dilemma. She could avoid it completely by simply leaving the state, as the state hoped she would do, but abandon the work she felt passionately called to do. Or she could go to jail. She and her husband planned to spend their lives in Mississippi working for the liberation of black people. She said, I didn't want Mississippi white men or anyone else deciding for me where we could live and work. I didn't want anybody to run me anywhere I did not want to go. However, much more complicated was that she was six months pregnant, which would mean her child would be born in jail and she would miss the first two years of his life. It wasn't a decision to rush into. So she retreated to her bedroom for three days. She told Pebble she didn't want to be disturbed by anyone. I did nothing but eat, sleep, think, and pray. And after three days, I made the decision to surrender and serve the term. With intense meditation, I had tapped into a very powerful force that I can't totally explain. I thought over every eventuality and was prepared to face anything. I knew I could handle it. There really was nothing anyone could do to hurt me. Came to a place of strength and peace that if they killed me, I was ready. Bevel was very supportive, but faced a lot of criticism. Oh, Reverend Bevel, you shouldn't make your wife do that. That's too much. They only thought of me as the Reverend's wife and as a woman incapable of making a decision like that on my own. So she presented herself to the sheriff, ready to serve her sentence. He was clearly amused at her bulging midsection. He told her to appear in Judge Moore's court. You know, the same Judge Moore that had found Byron de la Beckwith not guilty of killing Medgar Evers with a gun Judge Moore kept hidden in his home. So Diane entered his court, but wasn't going to sit in the colored section, so... She walked right down to the front, and for the protest of sitting in the front row, she was charged with defiance of local segregation laws and sentenced to ten days in jail, for which she began serving immediately. And the jail provided absolutely no accommodation for her advanced pregnancy, no vitamin pills allowed, no change of clothes, or even a toothbrush. She was kept isolated from other prisoners so as not to corrupt them with her talk of civil rights. Only one guard was willing to engage her in conversation and one day seemed genuinely interested when Diane explained the discrepancy in public school funding. For example, in Holly Bluff, they spent $191.77 per white child and $1.26 per black child. But the worst of her jail experience, she said, was the cockroaches, masses of them crawling up the walls at night, listening to the clicking of their feet, and then falling from the ceiling right over her concrete slab of a bed. At the end of those 10 days, she appeared before Judge Moore. He proclaimed her sentence was complete and she was free to go. She asked, aren't you going to hear the case of my contributing to the delinquency of minors? 
He said no. She told the judge very clearly she was going to go right back to teaching young people how to do nonviolent civil disobedience. She told him her whole full home, home address for the court record, so they said they couldn't say they couldn't find her. I want you to know I'm not hiding from you. But Mississippi authorities had tapped their home phone. They were aware that every civil rights organization in the nation knew her case and decided that keeping her in jail was a public relations liability. Diane said, I came away from the whole experience very much spiritually strengthened. In jail, I learned I could live with very little. The oppressive authorities imprisoned me and withheld basic necessities to frighten and control me. But it backfired. They are the ones who got scared. And in the end, I was freer, more determined, and stronger than ever. Diane today is 85 years old and living in Chicago. Both Peter and Diane had what I call a whole-hearted faith. They put themselves all in. Where Peter may have been impulsive, and Diane was more deliberate, both acted deeply and honestly to fulfill Jesus' call to come follow me and love our neighbors as completely as we possibly can. And next week we'll continue to watch Peter succeed and fail to do just that. A reassuring example of our own attempts to not act timidly in the face of need, but with a face, faith that is wholehearted. Now, what would that mean for you today? To live with your whole heart. <laughs>